Hi, I'm Caleb Giddings, and you're listening to Firearms Industry News. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be interviewing Stephanie Martz, who is an armorer for the United States Armory. If you guys want to listen to past episodes of the podcast, we're available on TuneIn, so you can tell Alexa to download me. And we're also available on uh, Apple Podcast or iTunes, whichever they're calling it these days. Just search for Firearms Industry News and subscribe. And of course, we upload episodes on YouTube and on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Caleb Shooting. And that's it for my boring intro. So today, I'd like to introduce uh, my guest, who's a friend of mine and uh, an armorer in the Army, uh, Stephanie Martz. And Steph, tell everybody a little bit about your background and what it is that you do. Cool. Um, but first of all, I think that all your people are your friends that you interview, right? I don't know why you'd have somebody on here that you're not friends at all with. I used to do a lot of these interview-based podcasts, and I would interview people that I didn't know. I'd just interview like industry guys. I'd be like, all right, I want to talk to you know somebody from Colt about why they can't seem to fix their quality control on their civilian Ugh. products. Here we go. Is that out loud? <laughs> so anyway, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, let's see how many industry companies will blacklist me by the end of this podcast. First five minutes. Um, yeah, so I'm Stephanie Martz. Um, I'm a small arms repairer in the Army. Um, I work full-time for the Minnesota Army National Guard, so basically I do my, I'm a technician during the week, and then during the weekend I do my drill. Um, and so basically we do everything from gauging and servicing weapons to repairing to going out and teaching marksmanship techniques to basically all that. We wear a lot of hats. Um, and then during the drills, I'll go on to ranges and I'll support the guys out there. Um, I joined when I was 17. Um, if you hear my dog in the background, I'm sorry, because he's having nightmares right now, I think, but, it's um, the middle I joined, of the day. yeah, well, usually I'm at work right now, so, like, they sleep, they're just, like, yeah, loves right now, and I heard your dog in the back, like, shaking, it was cute, but anyway, so, I joined when I was 17, I had no background within firearms at all, so, I kind of just chose a job and went with it. After I came back from AIT, I got my full-time job. And from there, I still really, it was kind of just a job to me. I really didn't have any passion about firearms. I really, I tried to do the best I could at the job, but it was really two years later um, that I started to really develop a huge passion for it and a huge, basically just longing to learn because there's a lot of people within the military community and the firearms community even that don't really care to learn more. Um, that yeah. is a, that's a fact. And why that's relevant and something that I, that I realized I should probably say. So one of the reasons why Stephanie and I started talking was because uh, in the military, I'm in the Air Force Reserve, and I have the equivalent job in the Air Force to what Steph does in the Army. I'm a combat arms instructor, and despite the fact that it says instructor in my title, we're also responsible for all the small arms maintenance that the Air Force does. And we discovered chatting over uh, social media and once in a bar that there's a lot of similarities between the way the Air Force and the Army does things. And then there's some really interesting divergences as well, which are cultural uh, based on both of our branches. And so with people understanding both of our military backgrounds, we're both still currently serving, I want to caveat that nothing that we say, we're saying in our capacity as members of the military. While we are drawing experience from that, we're not speaking on behalf of the Army, the or the Minnesota National Guard, or the Air Force, or the Air Force Reserve, uh, especially the Minnesota components. So just so that's out there, don't friggin' at me because I'm <laughs> speaking on behalf of the Air Force because I'm not. I promise you. 
army what the fuck moments yeah whoops oh boy <clears throat> uh yeah we have we got the a couple of those air force pages too but so to get back to the to the armorer topic and something yes. that you brought up just now that i've noticed as well in the air force is you do have a lot of people who do our jobs who it's just a job like this is their you know whatever they show up they poke the gun they change the spring and they go home and they don't really care about guns in the sense that someone like you or I do, you or I do, do does does do and what that leads to is um an indifferent culture towards you know these critical weapon systems that we're trying to maintain um i mean yeah that's huge like like I said, it took a lot of exposure for me to even get to the point where I wanted to learn. It's just kind of being around a weapon that you kind of get that hit, right? Like mm -hmm. you're like, oh, okay, I can I can do something. I can affect something. And some people don't get that hit from it. There's just some people who just don't. And so I see, I have coworkers that they come in and then they go home at the end of the day. And the thing is that all weapons are constantly changing, especially in the military. We have regulations and we have rules and structure that are constantly changing with weapons. And there will be things that come down that you're just expecting hires to tell you, right? You're expecting tech ops to be like, hey, this changed within, take on, put out this rule. Like, okay, now you have to change the spring every like 2000 rounds, this is random, but- Before you like, continue, uh, mm -hmm. for people who aren't in the army, what's take on? TACOM, so basically TACOM is our boss. TACOM is the people that write the manuals for our weapons. So our, our weapon manuals are derivative from the actual manufacturer um, like manual, but they, they cut it up and they put it into regulation, into rules that we can work off of because mm -hmm. we're soldiers, we're not civilians. We're going we're gonna to use it differently, everything like that. So they're our boss. They tell us when to, uh, basically how to maintain weapons, based off the manuals, based off rules that came down and other things like that. And then they also put out safety memos and maintenance memos, and they're constantly changing. Um, so take arms our boss when it comes to maintenance. In the Air Force, we have the Security Forces Center, which has a combat arms hub inside of it, and they perform much the same function. And one of the things that uh, Steph and I discovered is that we use the same technical manuals for our weapon systems. The uh, TACOM is the ones who actually writes them. They put them out and then the Air Force goes, yeah, we don't need to make our own. We'll just yoink, we'll just take that because it smart. makes sense, which is, it is actually smart because you guys, you know, one of the big cultural differences, you guys are the ones who are using these weapons way more often in the field in certain cases. Like we do a lot more stuff with our pistols than the Army does. Uh, and obviously like you guys do way more with, you know, light and medium machine guns than we do, because I look at a 240, I look at a 240, uh, exactly three times a year, uh, when we do our annual quals and when we do semi-annual gauging and inspections on it, that's it. That's how much I touch a 240. Yeah. Have you guys gotten like any M17s or M18s or what's going on with that? Yeah. So our rollout for, so the Air Force decided that they, that we weren't going to do the two chassis program we're just going to get the m18 because that fits us force wide because the people our primary handgun users are security forces mps our cops so those are our primary handgun users and for them a four inch gun makes is fine you know it's it still fits in a holster it's still approximately duty size and it's easier to carry but also people that have to get this gun are osi agents who carry it concealed uh it also has to go to all of our pilots who carry handguns like c-130 pilots that sort of you know cargo guy pilots 
and that sort of stuff. So they made the determination, which I agree with, that the M18 fits all of our needs and it's logistically simpler than trying to have the M17 for these guys and the M18 for these guys. We're just going to get one chassis and one system. Uh, our rollout of it has been not great. <laughs> so we were supposed to have all of our M18s by the end of, originally we were supposed to have them all by the end of last year. Okay. Uh, we have two right now in my unit. So that's probably not all of them. Right? <laughs> well, we have 120 <laughs> cops in my unit and we're supposed to have enough guns for them. Plus our combat arms shop is supposed to have uh, trainer mules that we can use oh. to do quals for all of the other people who need them. So we should have like 150 guns. We have two. And they probably not said anything about that because I think it's definitely back at manufacturer. Kind so of interestingly, uh, our head guy for like the, the E7 who's in charge of like the whole implementation for this, like Air Force wide, is he's very responsive to people. I, you can tell he gets frustrated with people asking him stupid ass questions because he gets asked a lot of stupid ass questions, but he's very responsive and he actually explained like the whole kind of the holdup was uh, the holdup really was on SIG's end. So yep. SIG couldn't make enough guns fast enough for the army. And then we're the number two largest buyer of the M18 over in the Air Force. But the number of M18s we're buying compared to the number of guns the army is buying, it's like, it's not the same. So with yep. the army deliveries backlogged, the Air Force deliveries are going to be similarly backlogged. So they're trying to push what they did was they pushed out two guns to every combat arm shop so we could start getting instructors qualified cool. on them and get a maintenance certified on them and all of that crap. And then they're trying to push them out to uh, units in order of priority as they go. So we'll eventually get them probably theoretically 2020, but I don't know how the Rona is going to mess with that. And then, so probably more like 2021. Do you guys Thanks. have any M17s yet? Um, so I've worked on two generals, M18s. Um, it's kind of cool because like on the serial number, it has a G for oh, general, that's dope. but yeah. And it's kind of cool because this is, I actually didn't know how this worked, but generals, it's their personal gun. So they get to take it home. They get to keep it after their time. Like it's their personal weapon. Um, so pretty much, and I've talked about this before, but the two generals, they talked to each other and they were like, oh, we want the larger hand grips on it. So they basically brought it to us. I switched out the hand grips and then I cleaned it for them because there's a lot of cosmoline and crap on it and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So um, I was glad to do that. Um, I don't give them any bad juju for like not wanting to put the grips on themselves, whatever. I don't care. That's fine. Nope. If they don't care, they don't care. Like if they have a lot of stuff to do, I don't really care. Um, and to be perfectly frank, and, I, and so I'll ask you how you feel about this uh, after I give my thoughts. I would prefer the individual soldier or airman do as little to their guns as possible because uh, Joe and Airman Snuffy really a lot of times think they know more about weapons maintenance than they actually do know and we usually end up having to fix it when they say, oh, I was trying to detail strip the 249 because I did it once in tech school and now here's a Here's a handful of parts, and I don't know how to put this back together. The and feed I just tray go, cover is a big one on that one. On the 249, they try to take the feed tray cover off. Why? Because they learned in basic that you have to take everything off when you clean a weapon. And it's just... 
So then, yeah. Yeah, we don't even teach that at uh, operator level courses. We're like, nope, don't take the feed tray cover apart. Just leave no, it. No, you fine. shouldn't. There's no reason to. Like even like the pistol grip on the 249, why do you really have to take it off? Because then what happens when they take it off? They put it back in without setting it on that lip inside the receiver and, and then, then they have a runaway gun. Falls yeah, on. like... <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's exactly what happens. Oh my gosh. So speaking of that, uh, what is, give me, what's one of your armor pet peeves? Like one of the things that happens frequently that drives you up the wall where you're just like, oh. Um, so I'm kind of, I have this, I have this like album on my Google Drive and it's all of like the crazy stuff. I've just kind of always seen the one that I'm kind of big on right now is um people optics i'm kind of heavy on optics right now i like to check on optics because nobody really does like the mm -hmm. operator doesn't at all and so i'll get weapons with optics that are severely shaking like on top of the weapon just because the mounts loose or something or ccos are turned like to the side or loose within their mounts and like that's kind of always frustrating to me because these guys are not looking at their weapons as a weapon system, but they're really just looking at it as the gun or they're not looking at it at all. And like, if you That's can't, yeah, if you can't shoot with an, if you can't shoot with an optic, if you can't see through your optic and your optic isn't like steady, what can you really do with that gun? We, uh, so hammer. I just like, came back from, uh, I just came back from a deployment to the Middle East and at the end of the, by the end of the deployment, I was the armory NCOIC. And one of the things that I always did during issue and turn in, that's how the air force does it. Uh, we hand guns out, we take them back at the end of people's shifts. Uh, I would check, I would just, as I would take the M4 back, I would just grab the optic and just go like that. Just like, just to see yeah. the number of optics that I, I would grab it and go, chick, 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 and it was literally, there was nothing wrong with it. It's just they hadn't tightened the bolt. Yeah. And I'm like, guys, what what are you doing? You have this gun for 12 hours, and at no point do you go, hey, maybe I should check to make sure my optic's tight. Like, what, yeah. what are you doing with that? So the optic one, I totally get. And it's one of those where I think it's because they're just sort of like, well, the gun is here. I don't care about the rest of this stuff that's attached to the gun. Yep. Is my pec attached tightly is my optic you know attached tightly do my iron sights co-witness my optic who knows it's an adventure <laughs> bipods are broken like yeah it's kind of it's all up there another one um loading procedures has been a really bother for me because if you load the gun wrong it actually ends up breaking the gun a lot of the time which gun um so 50 cals in particular that's oh, a big yeah. one right now um and i know yeah Caleb, you don't deal with them a lot, so you don't have a lot of exposure or anything like that. Um, but and I'm not saying that is bad. I'm just saying we have different jobs. A little no, bit I did. So I've way. done two. So the only times I've messed with the 50 cals is I went to our operator school for it, and then I went to our main, our maintainer school for it. So like I can, if you hand me the book, if you, and this is why technical manuals are so great. You can read. Yeah, barely oh just just a little <laughs> bit so but like and that's the thing is you know you hand me a tm for uh a 50 and i'll be able to do what i need to do but it's not a gun i get my hands into every and you day. showed that too because like you asked me for a manual and i was like here you go and then you were able to totally get everything done that you needed because i yeah. think there was one with a headspace issue or something like yeah, that it was, one, it was one of the new a1s was all jacked up too and it's because the a1s are trash <clears throat> I have strong opinions about the M2A1. So, but tell me about the loading procedures for so, the M2 that are breaking it. Yes. So, um, 
back then, and I say back then, not like way back then because I'm 24 years old, but um, in years before, they would basically, loading a 50 cal, there's basically like, you put it in on the feed tray cover. You have the feed tray cover open and then you put it on the feed tray, right? And then you have this little like arm and it's like your ejector extractor arm, right? And yep. what they'll do is they'll move their rounds over onto the feed tray and then they'll jam this extractor ejector arm over the first round, okay? So it's basically like grabbing it. They'll, they'll jam the feed tray cover down, okay? They'll slap it down so everything's stuck now, right? Great, okay, perfect. So then they'll have to basically, ju they'll just have to rack it once because at that point the rounds are over already far enough to get right. down on the um, actual face of the bolt. But by doing all this, the rounds are kind of at like a weird placement within the gun that it actually ends up like marring the bolt, uh, the bolt like rail kind of place that it, I have a picture too, but I don't know if it'll show up. But um, it basically there's a trap. This is a highly technical though. podcast, guys. Like we're <laughs> we're actual professionals. The rail place, the the, the thing on the, on the, the yeah. It's really hard to like be on the spot like this. Oh my gosh! Like I sound like a freaking idiot. Not really. But I, I mean, most people couldn't it. describe the bolt face of an M2 if you were showing it to them. They would be like, I don't know what that is. It's a piece of metal. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So basically, there's a track. And the rounds are supposed to follow this track, and that arm is supposed to follow the track. And when you jam all those things in, it doesn't follow the track anymore. So PS Mag, and I have my qualms about PS Mag, but it's basically like an easy-to-read magazine that Taycom kind of puts out, and people write into it and stuff like that about maintenance. And they came out with a thing saying, okay, no more of that. We're going to keep the feed tray cover closed. You're going to slide the rounds in over so that it clicks in the first cartridge, and then you're gonna rack it twice. And you racking it twice is basically you moving the rounds over once, and then you moving the rounds over again on the bolt face. And mm -hmm. doing that makes guys not put their hands in there and jam stuff together. It lets the gun work as a gun. It lets it do its thing, and I love that. So now we still see these issues on the bolt because guys aren't still loading it like correctly. They're still opening up the feed train, jamming all this stuff in. And that's really hard for me It's just because they have the tools to make their weapon operate correctly and they're just not doing it. And well, that's, and that's one of those cultural things that we have to deal with where you'll have guys who have been in the military for eight, nine years and they've been doing it this specific way. And then the military comes up with a guidance that says, Hey, that's not the best way to do it. Try doing it this way because it will save us on wear and tear, save us and stuff like that. And then they'll do it for their progress check or their, you know, inspection They'll do it the right way, and then they will immediately go back to doing it the old way. And that's part of the one of the difficulties that we constantly deal with in the Air Force, and I'm sure in your job too, is training. And especially on the reserve and the guard side, on the part-time side. But I mean, I've seen it just as much uh, with dealing with full-timers too, is that we only have so much time allotted to do training to teach people all of these tasks. So when we get out to Camp Ripley to do our annual firing every year, we've got to jam through all, we've got to get through all of these blocks of instruction. And, you know, people will remember exactly as much of it as they need to remember to get through the block of instruction. Mm -hmm. um, I actually love, so I know that you guys, yeah, you've gone to classes and Stuff, and you've taught a lot of marksmanship stuff and I actually kind of love how you guys do it. It seems like you guys too, do put more of a stressor on that kind of learning 
stuff because the only times I've went to a course after out of AIT is like civilian courses that I've asked to go to like FN and Knights and all that. Like it's not like actual army put on courses unless you really try and ask like, okay, TACOM, come out and teach us. But you've gone to more courses like to keep your knowledge up. Well, that's one of the, one of the interesting things that is very cultural to the Air Force is because it was an organization that was founded by, you know, essentially by pilots, right? And to be a good pilot, you have to do a lot of continued education because airframes change, electronics change, things change, and to stay current, you have to well, stay current. It's something that anybody who's even gotten a private pilot's license has understands is that you have to constantly do continuing education. And that sort of filtered out into maintenance and all of that out, all of that other stuff. And it does even filter in a little bit culturally to our uh, security forces and our combat arms side where, so for people who are listening, Air Force combat arms instructors, you do my job in the Air Force, you first have to enlist in security forces, which is our MP branch or military police. Uh, after you do that, you can then opt to retrain into combat arms. Once you do that, you'll go to, it's a, I think it's an eight week school. It was six and a half weeks when I went. It's a, I think it's an eight week school and they cover basic weapons maintenance for all our weapon systems, as well as how to teach how to instruct classes. So you get a solid two weeks of how to do presentations and stuff like that. Then once you finish that course, you have the option in your career to also attend a 50 Cal operators course, Mark 19 operators course, 50 Cal and Mark 19 maintenance courses, um, the combat arms supervisors course, which teaches you about like how to run a combat arms shop and all of that other stuff. And those are all Air Force courses that are put on by the Air Force to help, uh, for lack of a better word, to provide that continuing education component. And I remember the first time I talked to an army friend of mine about all of that, he's like, well, you guys do that? I was like, <laughs> y you don't? And it turns out that a lot of that stuff in the Air Force, which is big Air Force led, is really unit driven in the army, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, and it doesn't happen because of that. If it's, if something is unit driven, like you said, we're going to go there, we're going to get the scores, we're going to get the qualifications, then we're going to leave. It's not about like keeping our knowledge up like your kind of mentality is. It's not, we don't, we don't take our 91 Fox small arms repairs every year and teach them all the things that have changed or go through a class with them. So now we have these new guys coming in who have no idea what they're doing and hopefully they have a good leader. Hopefully, I don't know. So it's, it's, yeah, it's hard. Like it, it super sucks. And that mentality that you like the air force has, it's awesome. It's so awesome because like I said, like I've had to beg prod and steal to get to courses just to, just to learn more, you know, just to keep that up. And if you aren't doing that by yourself, if you aren't logging into logs up, it's just, which is just like another website to get manuals and stuff like that and see updates. If you're not doing that yourself, Nobody from hire is going to tell you to. Nobody from hire is going to teach you the updated stuff. You have to find it yourself and then tell your people. So if you're not doing that, you're not. Like, I do want to be clear on one thing for people who may be interested in combat arms or think that like everybody's career track is the same as mine. I volunteered for all of the courses that I have been to. You know, it is, it, if you want, you can also do this job and you can go to drill one weekend a month and two weeks a year and just cruise, go on the deployments when you're required to go on your deployments. But 
and this is and this is the thing the reason why i wanted to do this job is because before i got into it i already liked guns i already liked teaching and for me this is a vehicle to get better to take things that I'm good at in the civilian, well, good, I'm okay at it, to take things that I'm okay at on the civilian side, apply them to the military side, take knowledge, and then try to take knowledge from both places, from the civilian sector and the military sector, and make myself a better shooter, instructor, and maintainer. And one of the things that I've learned from it is that ARs are boring, and I hate working on them. Um, I yeah, I just... So, and this is this is something I wanted to talk to you about because I know you like rifles. Like you're forever like this rifle and that. And I'm like, I don't, for me, it's just like, yeah, man, it's like, uh, like, I mean, it is a thing, especially in the military context. Uh, the M4 carbine is a thing designed to fit a very specific set of specifications and it does that very well. And it's really freaking boring. I don't understand. <laughs> it, it, it is. It's not interesting. It's not hard to shoot. Like, it's not hard to shoot. Uh, it's extremely reliable when maintained correctly. And it's not, e I, it's not even that mechanically interesting. It's, very, it's a very straightforward You've been more exposed to pistols, though, haven't you? And I is mean, that kind of where it's drawing from? In my civilian side, yeah. I've definitely been more exposed to handgun shooting which i find more interesting anyway because it's more technically challenging yeah uh but also i just i don't know man like ars are just kind of like it's like okay i mean it it's like a hammer it, it, it is designed to do a thing and it does that thing really really well uh even on the civilian side i have one ar i think it's a seekins precision I, okay. I, i'd have to look i don't know yeah um but you know you get this thing where, and you know, obviously, like you have people like me and you who are we're passionate about what we do. We have people who aren't really that interested in it. Uh, what's interesting to me is how in passionate you are about machine guns. How much do you love machine guns? I love machine guns. I think I love them. They sometimes, like Mark 19s, they're really finicky, but they will they will work if you know how to make them work. Um, no, machine guns like the 240. It rocks. I don't know. I just, but I've been exposed to it a lot, you know, and that's where I get it from. Like, if you're not exposed to, hey, I can make this thing work better, you're never going to find like that, oh, like I want to work on it, you know? I but, got one no. for you. Okay. Why do people think that 249s are finicky? So the 249s are old. They're very old. They're old as hell. Um, yeah. And so the gauges that we have for them, we have like, three different gauges. We have a um, firing pin protrusion gauge, we have a barrel erosion gauge, and then we have a headspace gauge. So those gauges are only basically checking certain like safety standards, right? Mm -hmm. And then we do our normal inspections. We replace feed pulse springs. We do this, whatever. We see wear and tear. We There's new pistons that come out. There's other things that come out. We do our best. The thing is, all those things that you're checking, you're not taking a micrometer to things. You're not seeing things warp out like this or warp like this. You, you just can't see it with the naked eye. And so the only thing you can do with those old 249s is you either code it out when you finally decide like, okay, we've replaced this three times, these parts three times. We gotta, mm -hmm. we gotta just code it out. Or you, I don't know, try to do your best to take care of it. But they're old, like guns have a shelf life. Mm -hmm. They have a shelf life, and if you're if you're using old parts that have never been replaced, or things are warped, or anything like that, um, it's not going to work. 
They're not finicky. They're not bad guns. They're genius guns. Those machine guns have taken us to an even higher world with machine guns. Look at what they're coming out with, with the LAMGs and everything like that. Yeah. Like they're crazy good. We've found things from like, say, putting an optic on a 249. The feed tray cover closes three quarters of an inch different every time it closes. So it's hard to put, it's hard to kind of have a zero off that. Mm. But knowing that now we have machine guns that they have, they don't have that issue. Everything's connected. So you'll never have that issue of a feed tray cover closing off. So I don't know. I think the 249s are not, they are finicky, but they're old. So code them out. Get rid of it. <laughs> Send it back. Uh, so I, I have always thought that the 249 was kind of an, a misunderstood gun, right? Mm -hmm. Like yeah. it can be finicky, but a lot of the times the ones that you see in the field are either poorly maintained or old or both. And when you get both of those factors together where a gun's not been well-maintained and it's old as hell, it's not going to run great. And then the, you know, uh, I'm trying to think. The only one I've ever seen, I've, I've seen a 249 have an out-of-battery detonation, which was eh, a little exciting. Uh, the feed tray, the, the cover was about yay high when the round cooked off. So everybody got a little excited. Oh. Um, but it wasn't bad. <laughs> but uh, all right, so. So far, 249 is not as finicky as people think. Take care of your equipment. Yeah. This is, this is going to be a theme, guys. Take care of your equipment. Um, what is one thing that you see frequently that, like, kind of bugs you? Like, obviously, you know, people not taking care of optics, uh, but, like, like, something that is something that maybe people wouldn't even necessarily think to do with their weapon system. Mm. Um, okay. So we were talking about 249s just really quick because this is something that bothers the like absolute piss out of me. Um, so you may not be able to see it, but this is a front sight post on a 249. Yep. Okay. So oftentimes there's like a roll pin in there. Oftentimes those get pushed like off the front of like, so here's like your barrel, right? Mm -hmm. Here's your barrel alignment and here's your front sight. Well, like, that's good. Off. Fine. And it's like, how do you not see that? <laughs> like, well, I'll tell you how they don't see that. It's because I don't know what the Army's qual course for the 249 is. The Air Force's is 600 rounds, and no aiming is involved. I mean, technically, you're supposed to aim. However, what most people do is they go, run, fuzzy bunny, run. All right, eh, run, fuzzy bunny, run. Yeah. Right, eh, and, oh, now we're on, and then that's it. So. Yeah. You know, I they walk it in, and I hate that term, but I, I absolutely hate that term because, like, it can be precise as you want to make it. And so, no, I totally hear what you're saying. Like, even at night, it's even easier because it, I think it's only out to like 500 or 700, something like that. But at night, it's super easy. But, um, they could, they, what I like to see is guys putting passes on them during day and night and using the passes and trying to understand how those work and stuff. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if your front sight's over here, I guess you can see that, okay, like, all my stuff's over here, so I guess I'll just move over here. I guess just you can do that. Send it. That's hey, do fair. You guys, do you guys still use uh, T&Es? Yeah. Um, we actually just got, for our 240s and 249s, we have M192s. And so they're basically like a um, smaller uh, mount. It has three legs, tripod, with a T&E attached to it, so it comes with it. Interesting. And so, yeah, it's super nice. It's super easy. And guys have been falling much better with those and learning how to use the T&E as well with those. So it, that, that makes me really happy. Just I did. 
uh, I remember the first time I, expl I explained to somebody, look, here's why we have a T&E is because if you're actually doing a sector, so one of the missions of security forces in the Air Force for people who aren't familiar is ground air-based defense. So, you know, they're supposed to go to uh, airfields and stuff like that and be able to defend them against attacks. It's part of the job. Uh, one of the things that they train to do in pre-deployment schools is range cards. And I was explaining to this guy, I'm like, no, no, okay, so we have our range card. We do it out, and then I write these numbers on here, and that tells me what I need to crank the T&E to so that I, if I see people coming down this alley that I know is a possible alley for advance, I don't have to guess. I just go, and then the gun shoots them. Like, I, I do very little work, and I swear to God, he looked at me like I was a witch. And I'm like, somebody <laughs> should have trained you on this yeah. way before your pre-deployment workup. But, and I'm sure that somebody checked a box on it and said he was trained on it. And it's just, it's one of those things like T&Es, I, whenever I get to play with machine guns, I love the T&E because it takes your machine gun. If you're using your machine gun in a fixed position, it makes your machine gun really, really precise, like for a machine gun. You know, and I never understood people were like, nah, man, just unlock it and rip it. And I'm like, Aerial weapon. Ugh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> rip so it. for the, uh, for the listeners, you guys can obviously tell that Stephanie and I have some pet peeves about being <laughs> armorers in the military, uh, which brings me to my next question. What is the, I've seen some of the pictures that you've sent me there, there of guns, obviously, uh, of, uh, things that Joe has done to his gun what's your what's your worst all right like just the thing that when the gun showed up in your armory you were just like what in the how did you even what made you think this was a good idea <laughs> um i think one of them was it was a recent one too this happens a lot um so it was a rifle um and it had a boar snake and a boar rod and I don't, I don't think there's a bullet in this one. I think it was just a boar snake and a boar rod. But basically what happened was they got their boar snake stuck in the barrel and they thought the smart idea was to take like an actual boar rod, like a cleaning rod, and jam that down because you can push a rope, right? Like, duh. And so basically we had all that stuck in there. Um, and so the, the issue with that is now for us to get that out, we can come into a place of us damaging the barrel our, like ourselves because if we have to drill anything out, um, say like, cause there's two ways to do it. So you can kind of grease gun it out and use that pressure to push it out or you mm. can drill it out and try to pull it out. So the issue with drilling is you can definitely damage the barrel and all that. Um, so it could kind of come to a place of us having to totally uh, replace the barrel. And so it's really frustrating that guys who are just there to clean their weapon use a stupid freaking boar snake. And I hate boar snakes in the military because guys don't know how to use them, but they'll use a boar snake and fill it with patches or whatever so that it's super thick. Um, they'll put it down their barrel. It'll get stuck, obviously. And then, and I forgot, they'll fill it with CLP because CLP is right and slippery and slide. But what does CLP do to material? It bloats it up. Yeah. Like if you wait, hold on. Okay. So for uh, I, I would like to uh, believe that everybody who listens to my podcast is you know interested in good maintenance habits and good shooting habits. But 
So how I've always used a boar snake, and I've never it never occurred to me I might be doing it wrong because I don't think I am, is I'll put like two or three drops of cleaner down the barrel, drop the boar snake through, a dry boar snake, drop it through, and pull it through. Okay. I don't add any nonsense to the boar snake because you're not supposed to. It's got bristles on it, and it's got a brush. It's like it's everything. There. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Joe. But that was frustrating because it's like it's a normal thing that like – you will not run into any issues with, I'm just going to clean my barrel really quick and everything will be fine. And then now you, your barrel's done. Like, yeah. and it's super frustrating. You got to send it back and then you got to explain why this gun got deadlined and all of these other things. Uh, one of my big pet peeves is, uh, it, well, one of my biggest pet peeves is people, and this is actually not a gun thing. It's uh, an equipment thing. It's so right now our, current standard issue holster is this Farland SLS with the hood. Okay. Oh. It's a great holster. Uh, the problem is that screw that holds the hood on can actually wear out, not the screw itself. But if you, oh, I don't know, spend 12 hours on your shift, flicking the hood down, flicking it back up, flicking the hood down, flipping it back up, flipping it down, flipping it back up. Yeah. And then you do this for a while, that screw backs out and then it falls out where you're somewhere on a patrol and now your hood's broken. You're you have no retention on your holster anymore. Yeah. You bring your holster back and you're like, I broke my holster. And I'm like, first off, that supplies problem, not my problem. So don't <laughs> bring it to me. Secondly, why? What are you doing? Yeah. I mean, I saw, I uh, took a class with Steve Fisher and he had a hooded uh, uh, holster. Holster. <laughs> a hooded holster. And what he did was, I forgot what he used, but it was kind of like a bungee. And he connected it to the hood so that the hood has more retention. And like go, oh, when cool. he push, push, puts it down, it actually go quicker down. You know, like it's kind of a quicker thing. Interesting. I've never seen that before. I thought that was interesting. That is clever. Now we're yeah. switching, when we get the eight, the M18s, we're switching all to the new ALS holsters. Cool, so perfect. So those are much better holsters. They're superior. Uh, fun fact, the Air Force still does not authorize the Blackhawk Serpa, technically. Thank However, God. oh yeah, no, but it's, it's everywhere. Like, so our rule, about individual purchases of holsters are very loose, which is why I spent this entire deployment riding around with a Galco Combat Master leather holster, which was awesome. It's very comfortable, fast holster, great. Plus, I'm not like wrestling dudes. So anyway, but uh, back to you for another pet peeve or Wait, something dumb. So you said the Air Force doesn't authorize it, like legit, like so we have no go on it. So it's not that it's a no-go. So we have a list of approved holsters, right? So these are the ones that the Air Force issues, and it's the Safari Land, all right? So that's what it is. Now, individual units have purchased uh, Blackhawks, have purchased Serpas for their guys. Some units are more lenient. They'll allow members to purchase their own holster for use, and they'll use a Serpa and stuff like that. So my, you know, my crusade against the Serpa continues, and <laughs> I wasn't... I didn't, and like, look, the Serpa obviously has that glaring design flaw. However, the M9 sort of mitigates that because it's more difficult to leg yourself with a 16 pound double action trigger, all right? So while I understand the design flaw and it sucks and it's a crappy design, at least with the M9, because it has that DA first shot, you are mitigating that risk somewhat. Yeah. I'm not saying that it forgives bad design, but it does mitigate that risk. With an M18 or an M17 with a five and a half pound trigger pull, 
that's how you get blasted. Someone's going to get blasted in the leg for sure. Like my, my mind, when you said that thing about the M9, like my mind kind of went to the issue of when that it gets locked, like the gun gets locked into it because there's dirt within that, that button or whatever. Mm -hmm. And now you can't get the loaded gun out. And so now I see people kind of like becoming in a dangerous place. But then again, I also don't see soldiers going in the dirt or wrestling around, like you said, or anything like that. So, I mean, is it right? No. Is there kind of some mitigations, like you said? Yes. But it ultimately doesn't make it right. Well, and I have, an, I have an interesting question about that. So in the Air Force, at least in security forces, we dual arm most of our officers. So if you're out on a patrol or you're on a post or something like that, you're going to be carrying an M4 and an M9. And you'll have your standard rifleman's loadout, seven mags uh, for the M4, and you'll have two or three mags for your M9. And that's a standard loadout. Now, in the Army, do you guys usually dual arm or is it just here's your carbine, have a nice day? Um, I don't know. So it depends. Like, obviously, when units go on deployments, depends on what they're doing. I don't, mm. I haven't seen a secondary yet from the pictures and like people I've talked to. Um, with the M17s, though, I think everything's going to change from what I've been seeing. I think loadouts are going to change and everything like that. So a lot of like, even like Cascos that have never had a pistol before, they're going to have a rifle and a pistol. Or they're only going to have a pistol depending on like if you're in a Bradley or like a confined space like that. So I definitely think loadouts are going to change um, when those M17s and M18s happen. But we never, like, a, like going to that Steve Fisher class, I was running a primary and secondary. And I've never done that before. Soldiers like, don't do that. I got yeah, two I like, guns. Yes. And I didn't know what to do. There was times when I went to my like secondary and I'm like, I don't, I didn't need to do that. And then I'll go back to my primary for no reason. I didn't know what to do. I panicked. I was like, I got two things. I don't know what to do. What of these do I use? Yeah. So, so it's going to be a huge training thing. It, it'll be huge. One of the things we actually teach in the Air Force in our M4 qualification is we do a, it's only 10 rounds, but we actually have a whole section on transitions. So, which is, we don't necessarily teach when it's appropriate to transition, uh, but at least we go through the technical of like, here's how to get your rifle out of your way. And then I do this thing in my class. I'm like, now here's the cool thing. So I'm controlling my rifle, moving it away from my body with my support hand, right? What's my other hand doing? Because most people, they will put their rifle away with two hands and then go over and grab their pistol. And I'm like, you have two hands. Yeah. Take your support hand and move the rifle and control that and take your dominant hand and go get your pistol at the same time. Trust me, it's not uh. impossible. So like when, say, okay, so qualifications with you guys are much different than us. I think um, basically Probably. just the, the time before it and the time during. So I know that you guys have a certain group of weapons that you use as like airmen qualification weapons, mm -hmm. right? And then also, can you talk a little bit about the days before the qual? Like how, how, how long are you guys teaching these like PMI courses or anything like that before guys actually qual? Sure. So for the Air Force, we actually break the entire Air Force down into two groups, Group A and Group B. And that's Army Group A and Army Group B. Say hello to the internet, Ruger. Um, Ruger wants to be on the podcast. If you're listening to the audio version of this, my dog just climbed into my lap. So uh, we have two Army groups. We have Army Group A and Army Group B. Uh, Army Group A are people who are issued a weapon as part of their regular job. So that's guys like security forces members, uh, special operations, EOD, stuff like that, right? So these guys all have assigned weapons, okay? I have an assigned weapon. I have two assigned weapons. Uh, and we, in Group A, will all qualify with their assigned weapons, all right? And depending on which group, they may get a short refresher class on like, 
fundamentals of marksmanship or something like that. Group B usually don't have assigned weapons. They get issued a weapon before they deploy. So group B has to qualify every three years and or before any deployment workup. Whenever we have group B that's coming in for qualification, we have a full day class that we give them. We have a full classroom portion that takes anywhere from four to eight hours depending on the instructor. And the classroom portion covers uh, disassembly, basic care and maintenance, uh, dry fire fundamentals and range safety. And that's our classroom portion. And then usually the following day we'll go out and we've got another eight hours on the range to do the qual, depending on the number of students and stuff like that. Um, so if you're in group A, we might do a refresher, but for group B, they get a full classroom session. And there's always two instructors in the class. There's mandatory dry fire in the class and all of that stuff. And what I found is that's really a great opportunity for like, especially when we're teaching pistol, um, because rifle's pretty easy. But like when we're teaching pistol, you'll get guys and uh, you'll get airmen who haven't fired a handgun at any point in their military career. And they've been in for 12 years, you know? And all of a sudden the Air Force says, you are going to Africa to help with this mission. You need to carry a handgun and you get like a 47 year old, uh, captain who's a nurse who is <laughs> when you hand him this gun. And I'm like, Oh dear God. I almost got shot once in a class, like legit almost got shot in the face, uh, by a student. The student had their gun and you'll love this. They had their gun out at full extension hammers cocked back uh they just fired around and the student says staff started my weapon's not firing so i walk around to the student's left side their right hand dominant and i'm like angle on at them so i'm perpendicular to the gun the barrel's way out in front of me at this moment and i see that the pistols and battery hammers back it doesn't appear to be in any sort of mal uh, mechanical malfunction so i say well it looks like your gun's ready to fire those were my exact words. What this person heard was fire. And that wouldn't have been bad because I was safe, except while I was saying that, this person had retracted the gun. So it went from being way out in front of me to being exactly parallel with my nose, still pointed down range. But the, the ejection port was right in front of the tip of my nose with the barrel pointed down range. And she was starting to turn. And as the word fire happened, she pulled the trigger and the gun went off right in my face and i'm not gonna lie a little bit of poo came out <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do immediately after kicked her off the range right just right away did yeah. you take the gun and then so we took control of the gun called a cease so in that situation take control of the gun we call a ceasefire and we have like a debrief and like a hey here's what happened here's why this was unsafe you're not in trouble but you can't shoot again today, all right? Like you're not in any trouble with your unit or anything like that, but that was super dangerous. And also Caleb has to clean poo out of his pants. <laughs> so that's my- she, How did she react? Like, was she super scared or she was, was she scared before? She would, like, no, she wasn't scared. She just was, she was really, uh, she felt really bad. Uh, yeah. And- We're almost we, shooting you? Yeah, you know, weird. <laughs> Strange how that happens, right? So- that is my biggest pet peeve is when we're teaching marksmanship classes, which we do a lot, is 
people who don't pay attention during the classroom portion and then ask me questions during the range portion that I answered in the classroom portion. And the reason why that bothers me is it makes the range portion go longer than it needs to. And yeah. at least to me as an instructor, I find that disrespectful to the other students. All right. Oh, yeah. Like if I have a class of 10 people and nine of them are paying attention in classroom and one of them's not, and we get out to the range and that one person is like, what do I do if the gun stops working? And I'm like, hey, remember yesterday when we covered immediate action? Fucking do that. I don't remember it. Mm, guess you should have paid attention. Yeah. And I know that's I mean, not the best instructor attitude, but also at the same time, it's difficult for me to want to invest my time in this one person who wasn't paying attention when I had eight that were or nine. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like I like I said before, like you're gonna find people who care and people people who don't. So you mm -hmm. need to you're obviously still make sure people are safe, but um, one, as you were talking about that, my mind kind of moved towards um, range safeties. So in the army, we have um, range safeties. And so basically what they do, what they are supposed to do um, is make sure everybody's safe on the range. Make sure they're not going, yeah. I have an army range question. Okay. Why do you make everybody walk through like a little pathway, like a single file pathway to get onto the range? Um, what kind of range is this? It was, uh, so we, when we do quals down at Fort Bliss, we have to adhere to army range rules and mm -hmm. to get onto the range. Like you basically have to like everybody go in a single file line. Then you walk onto the range and you go past and you get, go to the clearing barrels you exactly. get cleared out and then you walk down to your points and i'm like i already cleared my gun out like i've cleared my gun like seven times now and why am i clearing it an eighth time because i mean and yeah like i asked what kind of range because i mean even just so a zero range or a normal qualification rifle range um yeah they have that one single line and that's because you need to have an actual like range safety um clear your gun for you so you don't have guys on the other end of the ranges now walking off the line without their gun getting cleared um so that's why i know it's dumb but basically they don't trust you to be responsible for with your own weapon it's not big boy rules on those ranges it's range safety yeah and so we still have guys i mean like i've heard deployment stories where officers will clear, clear their m9 with the magazine and they'll shoot five rounds into a clearing barrel because that's they a lot <laughs> because they forgot to take their magazine out you know so that's why that we do that um and so range safeties their job is to basically make sure everyone's safe make sure people are not um going past their um, lines Firing lines, make sure people are not pointing the weapon in an unsafe direction, um, everything like that. And that is all they're supposed to do. They should know some proper clearing techniques and malfunction techniques just to make sure that soldier is being safe if they have to clear their weapon or anything like that. Um, other Or like, say, like um, cook-offs or anything like that, just unsafe things. They should know those things. But what they are not supposed to be doing is trying to teach soldiers on the range how to properly zero or how to properly shoot a gun because they don't know. So we have this thing, this terrible thing in the army where these safeties, on the zero range especially, they'll be, they'll be adjusting people's sights. They'll be going up to targets and marking targets for them. And they're taking the responsibility off of the soldier and putting it onto a range safety that has no idea what they're doing at all. And so now the soldier will never learn how to zero or never learn how to properly adjust their sights or anything like that. And it's so, like, it's so frustrating. Um, 
So oh, in, yeah. <laughs> in the Air Force, how we do that is all of the, when we do a qual range, if we have appropriate manning, all of those guys, you'll have one tower operator. And so the tower operator is the guy who's telling people what to load, when to fire, what position to fire from, all of that stuff. Uh, and then you'll have your block instructors. And your block instructors are the same as your range safeties. Uh-oh, got to go yell at your dog. Well, I'm going to keep uh, telling you guys about this, and she can go run off and uh, deal with her dog. So <laughs> we have – this is the best thing about doing podcasts in the corona era, guys. I tell you what, we you know, we got dogs going bananas. Uh, my dog tried to jump into my lap, and my guest is running up and down the stairs right now, which I can sort of see – in the background. I'm going to continue to narrate her actions. Oh, here comes a dog. Uh, and we'll see what happens. So he was literally stuck in a bedroom. Like, I feel so bad. <laughs> it's okay. I was just narrating. So if someone, it's going to be so weird if someone downloads this podcast in like a year from now to listen to it and going to be like, why did his guest run off and like run up and down the stairs and do all of these things? Uh, guys, it's because it's the Corona times and everything's crazy. Uh, so anyway, what I was saying was, so what we do is those, your, what you call range safeties, we call block instructors and your block instructors are all combat arms instructors. So they're all certified instructors. And what we do is we'll have them, we do zero fire first and then we do the qual. And when we do zero fire, we go and we shoot at the little 25 meter zero targets because that's how the Air Force zeros. I have strong feelings about 25 meter zeros, but that's really, I, yeah, very strong feelings. I think it's stupid. Okay. Um, but anyway, so Anyways. we do we do our 25 meter zero, uh, and then what the instructor does is they read the zero target and they tell the student how many clicks to adjust it. We don't adjust their guns. So it's on the student to correctly know, which it's also on us to have taught them in the classroom portion, which way to turn your knobs and crap. But it's on the student to actually do the adjustment to their weapon to That's zero done. it. Yeah. And so like, wait, are they supposed to know the adjustments themselves too, or is the instructor the only? It's kind of printed it on the target. Okay. So yeah. you've seen those 25 meter zero targets, right? It says Which one box the, equals three clicks on the aim point. And are they the bad ones? The bad shitty targets? Or we I don't know which ones the shitty targets are. Oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> like the old tan ones that have like a box down here for no reason and like they're just dumb, like you're supposed to aim here and then impact here and like Oh no, thank God. No. no? So okay. our our zero target, it uses the three hundred meter reduced silhouette. Okay. So it's got the little silhouette guy and then it's the silhouette guy is on a grid. And that's okay. it. And then oh. it actually says, you know, each square equals you know, X clicks for your aim point when you're doing your adjustment. So theoretically, a student could read it and adjust it themselves. Yeah. Theoretically. I mean, I've tried to change my verbiage with that just to, and I know it's like totally with more um, advanced students, but I've tried to say not clicks anymore. I've tried to say minutes. So like if the target says half an inch or half a minute adjustment, I try to say, okay, move half a minute or like mm -hmm. move a minute or something like that. Just so they get away from like, okay, like I'm just going to click four times and then it should be there. You know, like it's kind of like a larger let's learn. The thing. Yeah. I like, I like that. Uh, and I would probably do that for higher level audiences, exactly. but yeah. 
when I'm teaching a, a construction worker who's going, you know, he's deploying <laughs> to, that's literally, no, like, and I don't mean that like yeah. in a bad way, like his job in the Air Force, he's a construction worker. That's he builds fair. runways, you know, and that's a yeah. super important job. And the Air Force says he needs to be qualified on this weapon system. So I want to do my job. One of the things that I feel very passionately about is I understand that carrying a weapon is not these guys' primary responsibility. I love so I this. Want, I, I love what you're about to say. Like, I'm just in love with it. So what I want to do is I want to give them the best ability to use this weapon as best as they can, but also I don't want to waste their time. You know, and I really think that like, you know, if I just teach people to the qualification, that's great. I've done my job, but I can be better than that. As an instructor, I can be better than just checking the boxes. You're qualified. Go with God. I hope you don't have to use this weapon. Uh, <laughs> speaking of people who I didn't have to use this weapon, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to go to you for one last thing. And we'll probably wrap this bad boy up. But so on my most recent deployment, we had a lot of army cats transiting the base that we were at. Okay. And y'all still have some old ass guns in your inventory. Like I saw dudes with A2s with, I saw a dude with an, I saw a dude in the chow hall. First off, his weapon was just dangling all willy nilly. So that was fun. <laughs> but I saw a dude in the chow hall with an M16 A2 with a gooseneck mount. You know what a gooseneck mount yeah, is? Yeah. yeah. With a gooseneck mount yeah. and an aim point on top of his gooseneck mount. And I'm like, did you steal that rifle from Black Hawk Down? <laughs> like, where did you where did you even get that? Yeah, that it, it's a thing. That's our inventory right now. Like, especially like um, HRC units, like uh, finance units and stuff like that. Like, they have their old their old M16s. And what we've been trying to do is just make let we'll do what we can with them. So what we're trying to put pick rails on them. We're trying to put adjustable stocks on them. Like we're trying to just make do with what we got. But I mean, holy crap. I don't think that guy mounted that ACOG by himself because there's a whole lot that goes into mounting an ACOG on a gooseneck. Yeah, oh, it was a name so. point. It was a 68. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. okay. But still, he had still. a 68 on a gooseneck. I was like, okay, that's really cool in like 1996. Um, yeah. It's not, it's, it's 2020, dude. Get, get, look at this M4. Yeah. Uh, so that was one of the funny things was seeing the other, just the, the jacked up guns that some what of these What year was that? That you saw that? 2019 oh because literally <laughs> on the deployment i just came back from that's insane it was crazy like, all of our units now you are going to get lateral if you don't have them you'll get lateral than fours at least if you're deploying yeah there were some there were some goofy stuff we saw floating around the aor uh and of course i did have i did finally have a i was a marine uh tell me that hey man do you know your your pistol's on fire and i was like yeah, because it's supposed to be. So for people who don't know, the Air Force <laughs> carries our M9s with a round in the chamber and the weapon fully decocked and on fire the way it was designed to be carried. Mm. But like, won't your gun just like go off? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the Army is scared of guns on fire and they're scared of hammers. Like, Oh my God, yeah, it's bad. Like, that's because we don't understand them, but like... The I mean, when we did the Super Bowl, so we had to support the Super Bowl in Minnesota. And, like, I understand it's a totally different thing than, like, combat and stuff like that. But we ran around with guns that had no magazines inside them. Of course. As a show of force. Oh, my God. If I wanted – I would – anybody can see that there's no magazine in that gun. Did you at least have mags, like, on your body? 
no, they, I know, like, I don't, I, I wasn't doing it. I just saw what was happening. Cause we had to go and like pre-mob all the M9s. And I asked like, okay, like, how are they going to be carrying these? And they were literally like, um, they're just going to have them on them. I'm just like, oh. yo, I saw. So, and that was the other thing that was crazy was the number of army cats that were transiting the AOR who were just like, they had to have their weapons with them, but their weapons weren't loaded. And yeah. like one of the things that I have always appreciated about the air force. And again, I know like the air force is not perfect. There's fucked up stuff that we have to deal with every day, but I very much appreciate that my branch of the military, when they tell me that I have to carry a gun, they also tell me to load it. They're like, is that everybody? So is that every airman that's carrying a gun, not just security forces? If they have to carry one, they'll tell so, you. Yeah. If you're issued a gun for whatever mission it is, it's going to be loaded. Like with an M9, it'll be loaded with a round in the chamber and on fire. Our normal carry condition for our M4s is chamber empty uh, on safe. So our loading procedure for the M4 is you take your empty M4, put it in the clearing barrel, close the bolt, close the dust cover, excuse me, close the ejection port cover, put it on safe, insert your loaded magazine, slap it and tug it. And now your weapon's loaded. What about 249s? Do you know how they're? Half load. <laughs> I had to think about it. We do a half load. Like, okay, so, so maybe I don't know what you mean by half load, but where's the bolt? And bolts, where, yeah, I don't know. Bolts forward, rounds are on the feed tray Perfect. on top of the bolt. Uh, so uh. in the Air Force, and I'll, I'll, so we have two types. So for our belt feds, for the 249s and the 240s, we have two types of loads that we use. So everything is supposed to be done in a half load to start with. And the half load is you open up the feed tray, clear it out, lock the bolt to the rear, inspect the chamber, blah, blah, blah. Then you let the bolt go forward. You leave it on fire, obviously, because you can't put it on safe if the bolt's forward. And then you lay your rounds on top of the feed tray, or yeah, on top of the tray, and close it, and uh, that's it. So your bolt's forward, rounds are in it. So all you have to do to fire the weapon is grip it and rip it, and then pull the trigger. I love that. It is so safe. It is so good for the gun, because a big thing that happened within the Army is they would have guys on deployment carry their weapons, um, rounds on the feed tray pulled back to the rear put on safe oh, so now the safety on that is like a little nub and holy it like Hannah. engages like a little <laughs> another little nub it's like holy not Hannah. Really yeah a <laughs> like ruger's like that's effed up and i'm like i know but that's the thing and so now if your sear is worn out because say guys are ripping it back with the safety on somehow that sear pushed up and now they're wearing the sear down and then say they say okay well we got to have this ready to go so we're going to rip the bolt to the rear, put it on safe, and it'll be good. Okay, what happens when that bolt goes forward? What happens then? Yeah, the gun just starts exactly. shooting. It becomes that, very exciting. Oh, my God. But So that's super cool to hear that you guys do it that way. That's freaking awesome. All right, Steph, we are about done. So what I want you to do is I'm going to ask you one last question. If you could change one thing, just one thing, if the five-star general of all of things, we don't have any five stars anyway, whatever. If the, if the god king of the army came to you and said, Sergeant Martz, you can change one thing about the way we do weapons maintenance. What's your one thing? I want full-time technicians to visit every unit once a year and give a class. That would, that's actually amazing. Like, I can't, it's, it's weird to me that you guys don't do that, but that, 
I imagine that would be a very effective thing. So Steph, do you have any social media that you want to pimp out? Any projects you're working on outside of the army? Anything, any links that you want to drop? Um, not really. I mean, I've been writing for Gat Daily and American Gunsmith uh, lately, and they are both very good to me. That would um, be an example of something to pimp out. Yes. So. I guess that's fair. I'm not used to this like whole pimping thing. Like, but um, yeah, so those are very good. They've been very good to me and they put out really good stuff. Um, so definitely check them out. American Gunsmith is more so of um, like, I'm kind of an outlier with it. I don't do a whole lot of gunsmithing in the metal kind of stuff, but mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of changing like that but it's a lot of gunsmith techniques and then gat daily is um i've been trying to put some stuff up there like army stuff to learn and try to reach out to soldiers but caleb obviously writes for gat daily as well and they, they do put a lot of good stuff caleb puts a lot of good stuff about pistols and revolvers and i know nothing about revolvers so it's I okay they're completely archaic and obsolete except for like this oh. really narrow use case which is great so guys uh that was it steph i want to thank you for coming on i really appreciate it it was great to talk to you hopefully soon the uh these corona times will be over and i'll get to actually go back to my unit in minnesota and do some training and we can drink a beer again yeah guys thanks for listening uh if you want to follow us on social media it's facebook.com slash caleb shooting you can follow my instagram page at radicaleb with an underscore after it if you like pictures of alcohol dogs and watches and occasionally some firearms content thanks for listening and i'll see you guys next week <laughs>